Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. And this is the next in our series of 2020 mini-episodes. During this time of social distancing, we realized that a lot of our favorite authors and artists would not be able to promote their new books. We've spoken with incredible creators of middle grade and YA and graphic novels and picture books, and we're really excited to share this with you. Please enjoy this slight deviation from our regular content, and remember to buy from your local independent bookstores. We continue our series with co-authors of the book, I'm Not Dying With You Tonight, Kimberly Jones and Geely Siegel. Kimberly also has a video out on YouTube right now called How Can We Win? We will link to it in our show notes, so please check it out. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having us. We're so excited to talk to you guys. And we love you guys. We're really glad that you're here. (laughs) So how are you guys doing? We're feeling overwhelmed today. I bet. Kimberly, you have gone viral. Completely. You guys, LeBron James tweeted it. Madonna. Alanis Morissette. Morissette. Alanis Morissette. Morissette. <laughs> Moly. I got a call last night from Wayne Brady. What? <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, I mean, like, it's amazing. It just doesn't seem real, real. right? Right, exactly. At all. But Marcy will tell you, I'm always hunting an adventure. <laughs> I know. I was watching that. Kimberly, I watched that video and I was simultaneously so proud of you and so upset that I could not just give you a giant hug because one, your hugs are like the best thing in the whole world. But two, I feel like you really need a hug. I really need a hug. (laughs) Yeah. You, You are going through a lot. We are all going through a lot. But thank you for speaking out about it and being so eloquent and powerful and not afraid to just explain things in a way that Like the Monopoly metaphor is not something that would have occurred to me, but it is so exactly right. Thank you, guys. I mean, you know, obviously I've still gotten my fair share of trolls, but the for the most part, the feedback has been very positive. And I, you know, it's 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 odd because I'm I'm obviously very angry and and broken and upset, but but I am also super hopeful because the people who are messaging me saying that made things made sense to me. Some of them are like legit Trump supporters and people who just needed things to be put in a concrete way for them that it was like, oh man, there's no way I can deny that that makes sense. I think it has to happen to them too. And I mean, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn, but I think that the, it's been a really good thing to see the police brutality actually pointed at old white people. Right. Mm. That's something that, white people can understand better. You'd think yeah. they'd understand anyone who is attacked or hurt. Right. But when you see an elderly man get pushed to the ground and he's bleeding, from, bleeding his head, from his head and people are walking over him like, I'm not concerned, and then spin doctorate and lie, even though it's on video. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're trying to say he tripped. Yeah. And it's like, but no, we just watched you push him down. The depth of the lies being brought to the light now is yeah. is profound and impactful. And impossible to ignore. Like, I think a lot of people would like to turn a blind eye to it, and, but it's it's becoming literally impossible. To ignore. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. They cracked the man's head open and then stepped over him. And then stepped yeah. over him. Yeah. And that is disgusting, but I feel like we've been seeing worse. Oh, so much worse. Perpetrated on people of color yeah. for years and years. And that has not had the same impact. And I think I was glad to see that scenario because that's what I wanted people to understand. It's like, yes, we all get upset about the murders, right? Because that's big mm-hmm. and you can't deny it. And if you've been a human being, you've been upset. You've been upset since Trayvon Martin. You've been upset the whole mm-hmm. time. But what I wanted people, and Gilly and I talk about this a lot, is what I wanted people to see was the daily indignities. Like, yes, mm-hmm. obviously we need to deal with the murders, but we also need to deal with that. We need to deal with, you know, the way people are handled just in a routine stop. You know what I mean? That to be treated like less than a human being because that power source in them that kills somebody has been building with indignities like what they did to that man. And then it manifests itself in its worst space when they commit a homicide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But we have to stop them before that. And I think it's helpful, too, because the the more extreme examples, people who are kind of in denial about the brutality of the police right now or people who are racist but who don't admit or believe that they're racist, they can... They can say, oh, I would never do that or, oh, that would never happen to me about a murder, right? That's It's easy to sort of push that back in your head and be like, no, that's that's too much. That would never happen. But if you see somebody get shoved down in the street, you can be like, oh, you know, I could see how that would happen to me. Or I can't say for sure that I wouldn't do that in that situation if all of the people that I was with in my training said, keep going. It puts enough of a doubt in people's minds about their behavior or the behavior of the people around them that they can actually create a little crack for a question to come in. One of the best ways to create empathy for any situation is through reading. And I think that your book in particular should be required reading for everybody right now because it's so pertinent and so timely. Yeah. So we were hoping that for the for the people who aren't familiar with it, if you guys could just talk about how it came about and just what, what the story is about. So um, it's a book about two girls, one black and one white, who are at their high school on a Friday during a Friday night football game when um, a racial epithet is used by a white student against a black student and a fight breaks out. And from there, a series of uh, violent events occur that throw the girls together and they manage to get out of their school safely only to discover that the entire city has devolved into unrest and nowhere is safe and they have to work together to get home safely. Um, And the original uh, idea for the story came about in 2015 in the wake of the murder of Freddie Gray by the Baltimore police and protests started happening across the city. And some of those protests were in and around um, a high school. And one of the days there was a flyer that went out that called for protesting around the high school. And the authorities get a hold of this flyer and they make two choices, which turn out to be really bad choices. The first is they decide they're going to try to put a stop to it by sending the students home early. So they close schools and they tell the students to disperse. And then they close down public transportation in the area. So you've got this group of students who have been told to go home and have no way to get there. And um, it became, you know, there was a lot of trouble in that area and Uh, there was a school bus that got trapped behind a police barricade. And there was a teeny tiny little news snippet about this bus. And then the news moved on because what the news likes to center is the violence and not what's actually happening in the community and how people are being affected. But Kim and I are both moms of kids just a little bit younger than the kids on this bus. And we got really stuck on it and went, wait, whatever happened to those kids? How did they get home? What was their experience? And, um, it has to have been a transformative moment for them. So we decided to write this book about it. 
So I've known Kimberly for years and years and years. A decade. <laughs> a decade. Literally a decade now. Yeah. <laughs> Can you believe that? And so when your friend writes a book, you're like, oh, please let this be good. Because you don't want to <laughs> have to be like, oh, yeah, I, I liked it. But, <laughs> <laughs> but when I was reading it, I literally, I could not put it down. I was on vacation, I think, when I got it. And I did not. I, I didn't walk away and do any vacation stuff. I just sat in a corner and read this book because I was like, this is an amazing book that everyone should read. And not only is it an important book, it's just yeah. compelling mm-hmm. and compelling in a way that helps you be a little bit more aware of what's happening. Even before everything that has recently happened happened, it had that effect. So it's even more important now. Thank you, guys. One of the things that I I really love about the book is one, of course, the two distinct voices of the of the girls and um, how they learn to talk to each other and communicate with each other. I also thought from the very beginning it's very cinematic, and I kept thinking of John Carpenter films, and like I could not. I just like usually in in books action really loses me. I'm like, where are they? What's going on? Okay, someone's over there. I have no idea what's happening, and so. I was really struck by how clear everything was. I just felt like you guys knew these characters and these surroundings and knew the story so well and were able to communicate it so well. It's so powerful, of course, in the obvious ways of uh, dealing with racial tensions and dealing with so many different issues of violence and white privilege and police brutality, so many different things. But I think it's also so incredibly written that it's a joy to read, which is is a weird thing to say, right? I love that you feel that way because we were very careful about that. And and one of the things we did was we walked their journey. We I was going to ask you about that if yeah. you actually physically did their no, walk. We physically did their walk. Um, and we parked a car at Alonzo Krim High School um, mm-hmm. and we walked down to East Atlanta Village where we imagined the riots to take place. And so we parked the car one day and we made that multi-mile walk um, and we got there and we took notes and we paid attention to how long it took us to get down there and and how many people we saw along the way and what the houses looked like and when we started to see the houses transition and how tight the space was once we got to East Atlanta Village and like how, how even tighter that space would have been if the streets were flooded with people. We made a map of that walk and that journey um, to get there. Geely and I always joke that we plot like we're writing fantasy. We have like, we like super over plot for contemporary writers. Um, yes. But it's good then, cause that, that makes me feel like, you know, then it must've transferred to what we hoped transferred to the page did if you saw that. Well, it did actually. It was funny because the thing that it reminds me of is actually the trip to Mordor by Frodo and Sam. Yeah. <laughs> this epic struggle just to walk from one place to another while there's all these perilous things happening around you. You have this classic format and it works yeah. really well. Did one of you wear fancy shoes? <laughs> we did not. We, we did not break that. <laughs> We're too old for that. That's right. <laughs> there are limits. There are limits. 
Um, I will also say that like a lot of the cinematic nature of the book is really credit to Kim and her background as a filmmaker um, and a script writer because she has a very um, cinematic vision and that makes it easy to move the plot along and to keep things to be like to, to move it like a movie does. And so I actually credit a lot of that vision of hers for making it quite as quick paced a novel as it is. We put our egos down to write this book together and we owned the parts that we were good at. Like I'm good at like dialogue and pacing because that's what you have to be good at in a script is dialogue and pacing. But I like sucked at writing a novel. Like <laughs> Geely has the background of like writing a novel. So I would send my pages and it would be pages of dialogue and she would be like, so this is a script, not a book. Um, <laughs> where are they? What are they? What are they seeing? What is happening you I, I just know what they've said um and how they got there. um and so we eventually we learned that it was better instead of like writing separately to write side by side so we started writing like literally sitting next to each other and I would bang out all this dialogue and then she'd go back and like put in all the description and where they were going and all this and I would be like that's too much we just gotta get going we gotta pace this we gotta move and um you know and and, and she would be like we, we have 60 pages of dialogue we have to like put in some scenery here um, <laughs> um and so you know we leaned on that and we were honest about like what each other you know was good at and we didn't have expectations for anybody to do anything other than what they did well you made a perfect team in that respect it's it's very hard to i think work with anybody on a creative project and sit there and be critical without being critical you know what i mean yeah, yeah. and to take it mm -hmm. in the right way yeah yeah we never fought over like we never really had, I don't think we had any like big fallouts or blowouts over Paige when we had like rough days. Cause I'm not going to say we didn't have rough days, but when we had rough days, it's cause we are two people sitting around having a conversation about race all the time. Two yeah. <laughs> How much of Lena and Campbell are autobiographical? You want to hear the funny part? <laughs> but opposite. I'm a lot more like Campbell than Lena, and she's a lot more like Lena yeah. than Campbell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's really true. Um, no, I don't. So Campbell is not, is autobiographical in the sense that she's reflective of the community I, that I grew up in, right? She's not me, but I grew up in a predominantly white community. Um, and these are the attitudes that I would hear reflected and the things that people would say. And I grew up in the nineties when the notion of colorblindism was kind of a popular thing to say and talk about, um, willfully ignoring the fact that if you say you're colorblind, you are ignoring people's lived experiences and, and how that affects their lives and in, in the way that other people talk about them. So she is sort of reflective of, of that, of what it's like to live in a predominantly white community. I mean, I think we have to like unlearn it, right? Because we spend a lot of time being like, I'm colorblind as a positive thing. And then failing to understand how our friends who are people of color are saying like, but wait, you're erasing an enormous part of who I am by saying that. Lena is more like an ode for me than like a person that I am. When I was working at Little Shop, Marcy will know all about this. We had this really cool program called Project Bookshelf and kids would come in for Project Bookshelf before breaks and they'd be able to get, you know, a certain amount of books for free. And towards the end of my tenure at Little Shop, I was the one who let those kids in and work with them. And they never 
they were kids who lived, you know, in the local projects and stuff like that, and they didn't see themselves reflected on the page. And so I wanted them to see themselves, not only see themselves reflected on the page, but I wanted them to see themselves as the hero. Because these girls are the heroes of their own story. Nobody comes to save them. They think that they're trying to go get saved, but they end up saving themselves. And as much as this book is about race, I'd say it's equally or more about the the feminine plight. Um, because the omnipresent threat to the feminine form is challenged here at every turn. If this book were two boys or people who are male presenting, you wouldn't have a book. This is true. And in fact, during the story about how you two actually did your walk, I was wondering if you felt safe during that walk because the risk of harassment, just taking a walk with a friend, you know, yeah. from point A to point B is is ever present. It's ever present. Um, and that is, that's one of the things that the girls experience as a common experience, right? Is the notion that they are, even though they're strangers, they don't like each other. They don't get each other. They are safer together um, because they're female. Yeah. I really respond to how well that was done in the book because I feel like a lot of times that content may be shoehorned in or like be really heavy handed. Mm-hmm. And that's just everyday life, right? And yeah. so that's in the book just as everyday life. Yeah. When we speak and we have like a, a large number of men in the room, we'll ask them how many of you guys are going to take your keys out before you walk to your car tonight? Mm-hmm. And, none of them, and none of them will say no. And then we'll ask the women in the room and we'll say, how many of you are going to make sure you have your keys out before you walk to the car tonight? And everyone in the room will raise their hand. And I'm like, there's there's this threat that's looming over us all the time that you guys don't even know. We are definitely wondering if you have any more projects that you're working on. We are working on a second book together, also out from Sourcebooks Fire. It's not, it, the book itself has been announced, but like the title and all of that hasn't. So I don't know how much we're supposed to share about that, but it's been pushed to 2021. So it's, it's a little ways off. Well, that's good to know. At least there will be more. I'm always like, more, more, give me more. <laughs> Get me some more. I can't wait until you guys have it all polished up and we can scarf it down. Yes. <laughs> Preemptively very excited. <laughs> we are also, um, because we're us, asking everybody that we interview if they have any favorite Newberry books. Was Charlotte's Web a Newberry book? It was a Newberry honor. Yeah, that counts. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. First of all, can we talk about the fact that you knew that off the top of your head? <laughs> Geely, you don't know this about Marcy, but she has them all. That's her thing. She's collected all the newberries. Oh my god, I love them. Super, and I'm just a nerd. (laughs) Respect, respect. Um, But yeah, no, we we love Newberry books so much because I'm so obsessed with them. I always love to hear what people's favorites are because they're either into it now and I can see what kind of stories they like or or it gives a little insight as to their sort of literary psyche. I'm not sure this was if this was a winner or an honor book, but um, Megan Leland Turner's The Thief. Oh, yeah. Mm. I cite that a lot. That was the book. And I actually read it as an adult when I came back to reading young adult novels. much, much later in life. Um, But it was the book that made me go, I mean, I got to the very last page of it and I flipped right back to the beginning and started reading again. And I hadn't had a book do that for me in a really long time. And it was the one that made me go, I want to write. I want to do this. And that's a good adventure story too with a good girl protagonist. Yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic.
But we should talk about Kimberly's internet famousness again because it's blowing our minds. It's blowing my mind too. I love it. The one when I was like, and I'm done and there's no more to be done was Madonna. (laughs) Do you think she was in her marble bathtub when she wrote to you? I do. I, I like to imagine that's the case. Yes. Yes, I assume that's the case. I assume that's the case. Geely knows this about me. You guys don't know this about me. The one that I hope doesn't happen, because if it did happen, I would be sending you guys all of the good energy and stuff that you guys need from heaven, which is where I would now live, <laughs> um, is Michael B. Jordan. I just feel like if Michael Jordan so much as like something on my page, I'm going to check out of this universe. <laughs> Oh, Lord. Okay. We better go because this could go on forever and ever and ever. But I love you guys so much. And we are so happy that you guys could come talk to us today. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you for having us. I love you guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Newberry Tart Podcast interview with Kimberly Jones and Geely Siegel the co-authors of I'm Not Dying With You Tonight. Thanks for listening. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.